Imagine you developed red, itchy welts and swelling every time you scratched yourself, swam, exercised, sunbathed, wore a backpack, felt stressed, or for no reason at all. You cannot sleep, work, or perform daily activities as a result. You feel anxious, depressed, and fatigued. Now imagine that you could not predict when this would happen. It could occur every day for several weeks and then disappear for months or years before coming back. This is what patients with urticaria or hives experience. Today, our patient has urticaria and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled The Long Itch, An Approach to Urticaria. Time for a minute physiology. Urticaria is a condition characterized by the development of itchy red welts that are transient and lasting for 24 hours or less at a time. Urticaria is otherwise known as hives. A welt or wheel is an area of central swelling often of the upper and mid-dermis surrounded by epidermal erythema. Wheels are pruritic, blanchable, can vary in size, appear on any part of the body, and usually dissipate within 24 to 48 hours. Approximately 40% of urticaria is associated with angioedema. This is characterized by swelling of the lower dermis and cutis, and can take up to 72 hours to resolve. The primary effector cell in urticaria is the mast cell, and the primary mediator is histamine. The development of urticaria is driven by mast cell degranulation in the upper dermis. Degranulation of mast cells results in the release of histamine and other inflammatory mediators like leukotrienes and prostaglandins. These cause local vasodilation, leakage of plasma, swelling, pruritus, and erythema, all of which are characteristic of urticaria. Signals that trigger the degranulation of mast cells in urticaria are not well known. Mast cells have multiple cell surface receptors. Classically, mast cells are activated via the high-affinity IgE receptor, known as the FC-epsilon R1 receptor. Some patients with chronic urticaria may have IgG antibodies against the high-affinity IgE receptor on dermal mast cells, leading to chronic stimulation and release of histamine, with resultant urticaria. Alright, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. Urticaria is a clinical diagnosis. Your history and physical exam in a patient with urticaria should aim to exclude differential diagnoses, identify triggers and underlying causes, and assess disease activity, symptom control, and impact on quality of life. Your first step in any patient encounter will be to assess whether your patient is stable or not. What is their GCS? Are their ABCs stable? What are their vitals? In a patient with urticaria, anaphylaxis should be considered if hypotension is present or if there is multi-system involvement, such as the presence of gastrointestinal or respiratory symptoms, especially after exposure to known or suspected allergen. Once your patient is stable, you can then move forward with your assessment. On history, you want to establish onset, duration, and frequency of urticaria shape, size, and distribution of urticaria, presence of angioedema, 
systemic symptoms such as fever, joint involvement, respiratory and gastrointestinal symptoms, possible triggers, which we will discuss shortly, prior therapies and subsequent response or lack thereof, comorbidities, family history, and social and occupational history, including leisure activities. Information on symptom duration and triggers are important, as urticaria is traditionally classified into acute versus chronic and inducible versus spontaneous. Acute urticaria is the presence of persistent or intermittent urticaria for up to six weeks, whereas chronic urticaria is present for greater than six weeks. Urticaria is considered spontaneous when there is no identifiable physical trigger, whereas inducible urticaria requires physical stimuli as a causative factor. Examples of inducible urticaria include dermatographism, where mechanical shearing forces such as scratching the skin causes formation of urticaria at the point of contact. Other physical triggers for inducible urticaria include cholinergic, cold or hot temperature, sunlight, vibration, pressure, and water. Examples of activities you may ask patients as triggers for urticaria about include exercise, holding cold objects, leaning on furniture, wearing tight clothing, and operating a jackhammer or a lawnmower, just to name a few triggers. On the other hand, spontaneous urticaria often has no identifiable cause, but may occur during times of infections or stress. Therefore, it is important to ask patients if they were in their usual state of health when the urticaria occurred. Were they ill with infectious symptoms, or were they experiencing any physical or emotional stress? Questionnaires such as the urticaria activity score may be used to assess and trend disease activity, control, and treatment. Unlike chronic urticaria, acute urticaria usually has a trigger. Common etiologies include infections, drugs, food, insect venom, or contact allergens such as latex. Some of these triggers are also causes of anaphylaxis. Therefore, it is important to ask patients about what food had been ingested prior to the onset of urticaria. Had any new medications been started? Is the urticaria reproducible on exposure to the same food or drug? Or had they been stung by an insect? Also inquire about symptoms of anaphylaxis, such as syncope, chest pain, dyspnea, cough, wheeze, rhinorrhea, sneezing, abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. Drugs that could trigger urticaria include NSAIDs, antibiotics, opioids, and oral contraceptive pills. Urticaria may also be associated with menstrual cycles and systemic disorders, and therefore it is also important to inquire about comorbidities. Urticaria has also been associated with any acute and chronic viral infection, which might include hepatitis B and C, HSV, H. pylori, and even COVID-19. Infections are an especially common cause of urticaria in children. Urticaria have also been associated with neoplasms, thyroid disease, and autoimmune and connective tissue diseases such as lupus. Therefore, you should ask patients about symptoms of fevers, weight loss, arthralgias, and arthritis. Symptoms such as painful urticaria, which is urticaria lasting for greater than 48 hours and leaving skin discoloration, are red flags for urticarial vasculitis. The term hives may often be used nonspecifically by patients. Therefore, it is important to visualize the urticaria. On physical exam, inspect the skin to confirm that the lesions the patient describes are consistent with urticaria. If urticaria are not present at the time of examination, 
Ask patients for pictures or remind them to take pictures in the future to help with the confirmation of the diagnosis. Urticarial lesions are raised, well-circumscribed, erythematous plaques with central pallor. They are blanchable and can vary in shape from round, oval, or serpiginous. They can also vary in size from a few millimeters to several centimeters. Urticaria may be present on any area of the body. Urticarial lesions are transient. They may start off small and gradually enlarge or coalesce, and then disappear within 24 to 48 hours without leaving a scar. Angioedema appears as skin-colored, non-pitting swelling and typically affects the lips, eyes, extremities, and genitals. On to our workup. Remember, urticaria is a clinical diagnosis. Therefore, a thorough history and physical exam confirms the diagnosis of urticaria. The Choosing Wisely campaign recommends against routine diagnostic testing in patients with chronic urticaria. Diagnostic testing is often not necessary as it is not cost-effective, does not improve patient outcomes, and does not change management. Testing should only be performed when the patient's history or physical exam supports the use of a test. Additionally, allergy skin testing or blood testing for specific IgE to food, drugs, or environmental allergens is not recommended unless indicated by history or physical exam. If you suspect your patient's urticaria is secondary to an allergic reaction to food, drugs, or environmental allergens, consider referral to an allergist and immunologist for further testing. Skin biopsies are also not necessary unless an alternative diagnosis, such as urticarial vasculitis, is suspected. For patients with inducible urticaria, challenge testing may be used to confirm the diagnosis. Challenge testing involves placing an ice cube in a sealed plastic bag on a patient's forearm for five minutes. Then, you remove the bag and assess for the formation of urticaria. Standardized devices for challenge testing also exist for various stimuli. Let's talk about our treatment. Once you confirm your patient has urticaria, the aim of treatment is complete symptom control. Patients with urticaria may be managed with a combination of non-pharmacological and pharmacological approaches. Non-pharmacological options include avoidance of known triggers, as well as avoidance of NSAIDs, opioids, and alcohol, as these may exacerbate urticaria. The first-line medical management for urticaria is second-generation H1 antihistamines. These agents compete with histamine by binding to the H1 receptor and thereby preventing receptor activation. First-generation antihistamines such as diphenhydramine or hydroxyzine should be avoided as they cross the blood-brain barrier and lack specificity for the H1 receptor, resulting in side effects such as sedation, cognitive, memory, and motor impairment poor REM sleep, constipation, and urinary retention. Second-generation H1 antihistamines have low brain permeability and are highly specific for the H1 receptor. There are six types available in Canada, four of which are available over-the-counter. These include cetirizine, loratadine, desloratadine, vexofenadine, and two are prescription only, rupatidine and belastine. There is no data demonstrating that one agent is more effective than another. 
initial treatment is with standard dosing of a second-generation H1 antihistamine, such as 10 mg of cetirizine or loratadine for adults. Response rates to standard dose antihistamines is approximately 39%. If there's no clinical improvement in two to four weeks, second-line treatment entails dose escalation of the second-generation H1 antihistamine to up to four times the standard dose. So for example, for cetirizine or loratadine, that would be up to 40 milligrams daily. Response rates to high-dose antihistamines is approximately 60%. Second-generation H1 antihistamines are most effective if taken daily for patients with chronic urticaria. They may also be taken prophylactically prior to exposure of a known trigger in patients with inducible urticaria. In case of lack of efficacy or side effects such as sedation, which may occur at high doses for some patients, a different second-generation H1 antihistamine may be trialed. Additionally, it is preferable that one type of antihistamine be used at any given time, rather than a combination of antihistamines. For patients who fail to respond to high-dose second-generation H1 antihistamines, third-line treatment is omalizumab, which may be added on for patients 12 years of age and over. Omalizumab is an anti-IgE humanized monoclonal antibody that inhibits binding of IgE to the FC-epsilon R1 receptor on mast cells. Omalizumab is administered subcutaneously every four weeks at doses of 150 or 300 milligrams, and studies show a response rate of 43 to 72%. Omalizumab should be continued for at least six months before determining responsiveness. Finally, if urticaria is refractory to omalizumab, or if omalizumab is unavailable or not desirable by the patient, fourth-line treatment is cyclosporin, which interferes with mast cell signal transduction and activation, thereby reducing release of histamine by the mast cell. Use of cyclosporin requires monitoring for cyclosporin levels and side effects such as renal toxicity and hypertension. In severe cases of urticaria, a short course of oral corticosteroids may be used, although long-term use is not recommended due to side effects. Once consistent and adequate symptom control is achieved, treatment may be stepped down to those we spoke about earlier in this podcast. Lastly, if you suspect your patient has urticaria due to anaphylaxis, remember that the first-line treatment is intramuscular epinephrine dosed at 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams for adults. Time for a medicine minute. Urticaria on its own is generally not life-threatening. Exceptions include cholinergic and cold urticaria. Cholinergic urticaria is a development of urticaria with rise in body temperature, such as during exercise. Cold urticaria is the development of urticaria with exposure to cold air, liquids, objects, or with evaporative cooling. Patients with cold urticaria are at risk for anaphylaxis with cold exposure. These patients should be counseled on triggers, which may include swimming, ingestion of cold foods or beverages, surgery, and IV fluids. Patients with cold urticaria should be prescribed an epinephrine auto-injector, especially if they have a history of anaphylaxis, frequent or unavoidable cold exposure, or a high temperature threshold for symptoms. Cold desensitization therapy is also an option for management. This involves repeat cold exposure to reduce the skin's sensitivity to cold. Treatment may entail daily cold showers or baths to maintain tolerance. Not surprisingly, this is an extremely difficult treatment for the patient to tolerate. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled The Long Itch, An Approach to Urticaria. This episode is written by Dr. Natasha Correa, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Samira Jaime, allergist and clinical immunologist, and Dr. Sarah Zafar, general internist. This episode was recorded by Dr. Allison Lai, sound editing by Dr. Nafis Hussain. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and is executively produced by Allison Lai, Zara Morali, and Leah Karianopoulos. Theme song by Lakshan Vizantha Mohan. As always, we have an associated infographic on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.